Well, I've enjoyed reading as a part of my preparation uh, for today about the science of changing our minds. And I think it's relevant for the passage that we're going to study. And, and so as I got looking into this, apparently changing our minds um, on even insignificant things doesn't come easily to us at all. And so if you throw in the bigger issues of politics or religion or our deeper values and our deeper beliefs, then it actually is quite stubborn. These things are very entrenched. They're very dug in. And, and, and change doesn't come very easily at all. What I was particularly interested in is that there's studies coming out of Stanford and Harvard that are showing that when people actually form an opinion, and that opinion is kind of set in their mind, that even when shown indisputable facts that the thing that they're holding to, the thing that they believe is wrong, people still won't change. They still, we're just stubborn. I don't know what it is that people just want to cling to the thing that they originally have held to. And so change doesn't come easy. Perhaps it's something uh, that we see early on. We see it uh, in children sometimes. It's just that, that hey, I, I'm right and I don't want to talk. So maybe you've seen this video. <laughs> well, sometimes we'd rather just eat an old onion than have to admit the thing's an apple. It's amazing. So change doesn't come easy. And I want you to keep that in mind today. As we look at one of the conversations Jesus had, today we're looking at the conversation that he had with a prominent Jewish leader named Nicodemus. And as we'll see, uh, Nicodemus, for him to become a follower of Jesus... He's going to have to admit that everything that he currently believes, and therefore everything that he has accomplished to this point in time in his stellar and distinguished career is wrong. He's facing the daunting challenge and realization that he's been climbing the ladder of success, the ladder of prestige and accomplishment, only to find out that that ladder is up against the wrong wall. He thinks he's got an apple. But Jesus needs to show him that it's really only an onion, and he has the real thing that he wants to give to him. So today we're going to be studying the passage in John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to John chapter 3. You can look it up um, on your cell phones as well if you have your Bible app, or we've provided that in your bulletin for you. And as we work through the conversation, I'm going to read a little bit. We're going to stop and discuss what was just read, and then we'll read a little bit more. Um, so have that handy throughout the whole message this morning as we work through this conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. Let's start in verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so let's stop there. And this is our introduction to who Jesus is talking to. Uh, this man is a Pharisee. Um, Pharisees were one of the religious groups of teachers of Israel. The Pharisees came into being, they were kind of the blue-collar group, if you will, but they came into being in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the writing of Malachi, and 450 years later, the writing of Matthew, or of the New Testament. And so the Pharisees kind of came in, 
into being during that time frame. And they were known as the ones who fastidiously kept the law of God. There's 613 Old Testament laws. And then there's traditions that are recorded in what's called the Mishnah, uh, the Jewish traditions. And this group of leaders saw themselves as the one who kept it immaculately. That was their thing. They woke up every day thinking that if I keep the law, if I can just do it right, if I can just get it down to the nano detail, God will accept me. Now, one of the problems that came along with this is they ended up being very, very proud and aloof. It set them apart from the people. It led to the ugly sin of spiritual pride. They thought themselves to be super religious and therefore better than the people. In fact, if they associated with the people, the people might kind of bring them down a little bit. And so they had a religion that caused them not to be drawn to people, but actually to be separated from. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, it says that he was a member of the ruling council. Now, there were 71 members that were prominent leaders in Jerusalem, and they were on the thing called the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. This was the desired position of every young Jewish boy growing up in that society. This is it. And he had arrived at being one of those 71 members. So he's a teacher of the law. He's a person who keeps the law. He's on the Sanhedrin Supreme Court Council. And also, as we will find later, he ends up being a very, very wealthy man indeed as well. So there you have it. Accomplished career, significant wealth, prominent position in society. Uh, The best way to think about Nicodemus, he was a rock star in that particular culture. And so on this night, however, what's really, really interesting is that he has some questions. You see, he had been seeing what the people had been seeing. This new, young, upstart teacher was on the scene. His name was Jesus. And he was different than any other Jewish leader of his day, either then or any time before. You see, he associated with the people, and the people knew that he loved them. He wanted to be with them. He considered them his friends. And then there's the miracles. Oh, my goodness. He opened the eyes of the blind. He healed the sick. He healed the paralytic. He cast out demons. He raised the dead, and when he spoke, nature itself seemed, or not seemed, nature itself obeyed his voice. And so this presents a problem for Nicodemus, and he's very curious. And to his credit, he brings his questions to Jesus. He just doesn't try to ignore them or put them in the back of his mind. But I love this about Nicodemus. He was willing to at least come and have a conversation. Verse 2. He came to Jesus at night. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now notice here, first of all, he comes at night. So with all due respect to the Nickelodeon channel, this is our first episode of Nick at Night. (laughs) All right, I'll stick to preaching. Sorry about that one. All right. But uh, it's it's interesting. Why did he come at night? Uh, We don't know. Uh, Some people thought that maybe what was happening is that he didn't want to be found out by his other uh, Jewish leaders. Uh, That may be the case. Um, In Jewish tradition, it was very common to have these types of theological discussions well into the evening, so there would be no distractions throughout the day. So we don't know. All we know is he went. He had questions, and so he came. And he starts off by saying, Rabbi. Now, this is pretty significant, because Jesus is a younger man. Nicodemus is older. 
and he extends to this untrained, unofficially educated young man, Jesus, and he calls him teacher. He puts him on the same plane as himself, Nicodemus does. And he says, no one could perform the miracles that you're doing unless God is with him. And see, this is a problem for Nicodemus. This is what's perplexing to him. You see, as a Jewish leader, he understood the history of Israel and that whenever God wanted to validate his prophet, whenever God wanted to say, this guy's from me, listen to him, he allowed that prophet to be able to do miracles. And it was kind of his validation of this individual. And no prophet before had done the miracles that Jesus was routinely doing. Nicodemus didn't do any of these prophets. His 70 other Sanhedrin buddies, they never did any of these miracles. And so he's coming to Jesus. Even though Nicodemus was a highly educated individual, what he knew is that miracles trump PhDs. And so he has questions. Verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Do you notice something interesting about this response? It has nothing to do with Nicodemus's opening greeting. He just kind of bypasses it and just kind of gets right to the heart. Have you ever had a conversation like that where you're trying to do the niceties and you're kind of, and the individual just kind of blows you off and goes right to kind of the heart of the issue that's on their mind? Um, for me, uh, I, I have done this sort of technique uh, when a couple of young men came to ask me for my daughter's hands in marriage. My older daughters are both married, and fortunately, and, and we're very excited, and we love our sons-in-law, but they both came and officially asked me, can I have your permission to marry your daughter? And, uh, and so when they ask, of course, they're very nervous, and they're kind of a little bit pensive, and, and then they ask the question, and I said, you know, this is great. Uh, thank you, and congratulations. And yeah, I have a couple of questions I want to ask you, a couple of things I want to say, but really I have only one question, and this is it. Tell me how God has led you, and why do you think it's God's will to marry my daughter? Dads, that's a free one. If you can write it down, you can use it later if your little girl's going to grow up. Uh, make those boys squirm, all right? Uh, take it to the heart. And so I went right for the heart, right for the conversation, and it was great to just listen to their, their answers. So Jesus may seem abrupt, he may even seem borderline rude here, but it's done for effect, and more importantly, it's the most loving thing that he could do in this conversation. You see, he knows Nicodemus's mind. He knows his questions. He knows his struggles. He knows where he's gone wrong in his understanding of God and his understanding on how to obtain eternal life, how to obtain salvation. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue, showing Nicodemus he knows really what his question is and why he is there. You see, Nicodemus is a legalist. He teaches and he thinks the thing that makes him acceptable to God is that he was born, first of all, a Jew. It's his birthright. And secondarily, that he keeps the laws of God meticulously. He thinks he's earning it. He thinks he deserves it based on the work that he does every single day. He's made it his life focus, his life's just like a laser beam every day going after this idea that I'm going to make myself right with God. 
Outwardly, as I said, it leads to the sin of arrogance and pride that he thinks he's better than. But inwardly, it leads to this deep insecurity. That's why he's here. He's here because he doesn't really know. Have I done enough? When we measure ourselves by our need to be perfect, when our self-worth is determined by us needing to be flawless, when we think that will be acceptable only through our accomplishments, it will lead to insecurity every time, and it will lead to exhaustion. In the back of his mind, Nicodemus must be asking, am I doing enough? Will God really accept me? You see, in our, our culture today, I don't, I don't quite see people putting this burden of perfection on themselves, this level of standard, but we're very, very similar oftentimes to Nicodemus. The popular thought today as I've talked to people is, God knows that I'm not perfect, and, and he knows that I'm doing my best, and he's a really benevolent God. And so I kind of picture God as looking at me and saying, boy, I know you're trying, I know your heart, and, and because of that, you're going to get your participation trophy at the end, and we're going we're gonna to embrace you into heaven. I've had one person go so far as say, do you remember the justice scales of, scales of justice? And, and you put a little bit on this side and the scales go this way. And he said, I, I really believe that, that God's going to take my bad things that I've done. And he's going to put the scales here, but he's also going to look at all the good things I've done. And, and, and my hope is the good outweighs the bad. And therefore, God's going to accept me and give me eternal life. But if you care to look deeper at this, if that describes you, it's a scary place to be. Let me ask you, how good is enough? How good do you have to be to make sure that God is 100% happy with you? What do you need to stop doing? What's the ratio of goodness to badness? How much does it take to offset when you do something really, really bad? You see, someone who believes this can never be secure. They can never have peace. They can never have confidence because you don't know how much is enough. It's exhausting if you think about it. And it'll make you a nervous wreck. And so what Jesus wants to do for all of us is what he was doing for Nicodemus. He wants you to first understand that getting into the kingdom of God is impossible for you and I to attain. We can't do it. It's impossible. It's like me walking you over to the ocean, going up to New Smyrna Beach, saying, swim, and keep swimming until you find Africa. You just physically can't do it. You spiritually cannot make yourself acceptable to God. Jesus fortunately has a better way. He says, stop striving and let me do for you what you could never do for yourself. He says, Nicodemus, you need to be Genethe Anothen. You need to be born from above. You need to be born a second time. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And that's what he's saying to us as well. It's impossible for us to make ourselves right with God, but God fortunately is willing and able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and he will cause us to be born again as we believe in him. The fancy name for this theologically is called the doctrine of regeneration. It's where God does not try to fix our sinful hearts. God will not try to fix your sinful heart. Instead, he chooses by the work of his Holy Spirit to give you a brand new one. 
He doesn't reclaim the old, he makes it new. That's regeneration. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of the deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? That's what it means to be born again. His Holy Spirit makes us new creations in Christ Jesus. Now, this is Nicodemus's response, verse 4. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Now, some people think that he's being sarcastic or maybe a little bit slow in the uptake, but what's actually going on here is very common in the Jewish tradition of theological debate. He's actually saying to Jesus, I'm tracking with you with the impossibility of this whole thing. For rabbis, this was their world. They lived in the world of analogies, of illustrations, of parables, of word pictures, um, and, and he's a brilliant scholar. So he's tracking with Jesus. He understands his point. What he's saying is, I'm just not sure that I can buy into it fully what you're saying, Jesus. So he jumps into the third person is what this is written in, describing that they're having a theological debate. And he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Okay, Jesus, I'll use your analogy. He can't jump into his mother's womb for a second time, can he? Can you hear it? Change is hard. For Nicodemus, who knows what's going on in his mind, but very likely, he's, he's catching what Jesus is saying. He's just not buying into it yet. Maybe he's counting the cost. If, if I believe what he just said, this is going to cost me everything. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. There's a big cost to this. Or perhaps he's just stubborn, and I, I don't want to change. I, I don't want to believe what he's saying. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. But you can feel the tension. You can feel the shock, and you can see that he is shaken by the thing that Jesus has said. So Jesus continues in his conversation, and in the next section, he gives him actually three hints, three riddles, if you will, that points that are made specifically designed to help Nicodemus work through his concerns and his questions. And again, Jesus is using a methodology that would be very, very familiar to the rabbinic tradition of theological debate by inviting his listener and the person he's conversing with to have to think. And so he gives them some riddles. He gives them some clues. The first hint is found in verse 5. Jesus answered, said, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So the first hint, as he's telling him, this is not your work, it's the work of God's spirit. Nicodemus, all your efforts fall short. He's saying you're in no condition to get to heaven by the stuff you're doing. Nicodemus, your flesh, all you can reproduce is more flesh. What you need is for God to give you new life. You see, I'm not here to fix your old. I'm here to give you a new life and a new heart. Now, he says you need to be born of water and spirit. And let me just, for those of you that are interested in this, let me just give you that there's three different theological views of what Jesus might be meaning when he says you must be born of water and spirit. 
Some see this, the first idea, as being a reference to physical birth, because in physical birth, there's the uh, uh, amniotic fluid that's a part of the birthing process, and so he's just simply saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born physically, and you need to be born spiritually. Problem is, in Jewish culture, there's nothing that's written that gives any indication that they referred to physical birth in this manner. And you've got to remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to a Pharisee, so he's going to use language that makes sense to him. The second question is, is for us as Christians, we look at this and say, oh, obviously he's saying you must be baptized. It's a reference, water is a a reference to baptism in the spirit. Well, the the problem there is uh, Christian baptism didn't exist yet. And he's having a conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. And, And so Nicodemus wouldn't understand a reference to Christian baptism in this conversation. Most theologians would agree that what Jesus is doing is actually making a reference that is very, very, very familiar to Nicodemus. He's actually making a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. And this is what it says. It says, then, God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. The water in the spirit is simply a reference to the new creation, the regenerating work that God does, that God, by the way, foretold it was coming way back when he spoke through Ezekiel. Isn't that great? And so Nicodemus would understand that because he's an expert in the Old Testament law. The second hint that we see given is found in verse 7. It says, You should not be surprised by my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Verse 9, How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Verse 10, Jesus says, You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Verily, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus gives him his second hint, an earthly analogy, wind. The work of God's spirit, he says, is like wind. You cannot see it, you cannot control it, but you sure can feel it and you know it's real. Was anybody here for Hurricane Charlie? Hurricane Charlie ran off with a bunch of shingles from my house and somehow seemed to make our, cause our, our master bedroom just kind of be soaked with water. Don't know how that happened. How about Hurricane Irma last year? Yeah, Hurricane Irma ran off with most of the soffit on our house. All right, but I couldn't see the wind, but I sure could, sure could see and feel the effects of the wind. And that's the hint that Jesus gives. The Spirit is like that. You see, nothing is impossible with God. The Spirit will give you new life. While you can't see him, you certainly will feel his effects. And he will give you a life that's free of this constant striving, this free of this constant self-effort. And he will do for you what you could never do for yourself. But change is hard. Listen to Nicodemus, verse 9. How can this be? He is struggling. He's wrestling. He's making the classic mistake 
of thinking only in the physical realm, and Jesus is trying to help him to see beyond the physical to the realm of God, to the spiritual realm. And so to bolster his argument, Jesus pulls out his credentials. Look, Nicodemus, yeah, you get your PhD. I'm from heaven. I've been there. And he pulls out his credentials. I'm from above. Now, I, I like the uh, comedian's bit, uh, uh, Brian Regan. Um, he has a bit where uh, he said he would like to have been one of the 12 people that walked on the moon. And he says, the reason I would like this is whenever I'm at social gatherings or I'm out and, and I'm talking to people, um, invariably I'll run into or inevitably I'll run into someone who's the me monster is what he calls them. And, and you've heard these people I and mean, you talk in a conversation with them. It's me, 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 me. And oh yeah, and I've been on these great vacations and yeah, I'm all over the world and the business is expanding and yeah, and look at all the cool possessions that I have. Me, 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 me. And they just go on and on and on. And he says, and I would just sit there patiently listening, and after a half hour, 45 minutes of them talking about themselves, eventually they'd get around to saying, so Neil, Neil Armstrong, what, what have you done? Anything fun? Ah, oh, yeah, you know, I, I've been on the moon once. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, and I was driving through the sea of tranquility in my moon rover and was going kind of fast and thought, well, hey, I'm the only one here, no big deal. And so, yeah, it was pretty cool. And, and he said, I would just love to be able to do that. Well, Jesus is pulling out his card. Nicodemus, I'm from above. He knows what he's talking about. And so then he goes on to give him his third hint, and the hint that I believe was the one that really helped Nicodemus the most. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, Jesus knows... Again, Nicodemus is an expert in the Old Testament, and he gives an analogy that to us seems very, very obscure. <laughs> What's this all about? Snake in the wilderness being lifted up? What? What does that mean? Well, actually, it's a reference to Numbers chapter 21, and there's a story there where the nation of Israel is wandering in the desert for 40 years, and the people inevitably would continually come to the point where they would start grumbling and complaining against God, and so God, as a form of discipline, allowed venomous snakes to come into the encampment of Israel, and people were being bitten and dying. And so the people humbled themselves, cried out to God, and asked Moses, what must they do? And so God said to Moses, make a image of a snake. He makes a bronze image of a snake, put it on a pole, and raise it up so that anybody who's been bitten can look to that standard. And by doing so, I'll see it as an act of contrition and repentance and humility, and I will heal them. And so Jesus makes this reference of Numbers 21, saying, just as the snake was lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who believe upon him will have eternal life. And so again, to you and I, we don't understand this story, but to Nicodemus, it was clear. And I believe Jesus knew this story was the exact seed that he needed to plant for Nicodemus, because he would know that ultimately, Nicodemus, three years later, would be there and see and understand the crucifixion. And he would remember this conversation with Jesus that he must be lifted up. And I just love this about Jesus. He knows your questions today. And he's so precise and uniquely tailoring his answers 
for you in such a way that you can grasp and understand so that you can be brought to the point where you can change your mind and be able to say to him, I believe you are the son of God. I am trusting solely in you for the forgiveness of my sins and the work that you did at Calvary. And it's my intent to follow you all the days of my life. If you give him that expression of belief in that moment, your Holy Spirit will regenerate you and cause you to be born anew, to be born again. So whatever happened to Nicodemus? We see him a couple of times more in scripture. In John chapter seven, he stands up for Jesus while his fellow councilmen are trying to figure out a way to put Jesus to death and they severely ridicule him for that. And then we see him in chapter 19 of John in verse 38. Jesus has just died. And it says in John 19, 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted him permission, so he came and took the body away. And then we see Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had come first to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds in all. And myrrh and aloes were a powdered resin, uh, resin with a fragrance that they would use to spread out over the body that would kind of mute the smell of the decaying flesh. And he brought 75 pounds of it, which indicated how wealthy that he was. It was an honorable act. It was a very bold act. And so he and his companion, Joseph Arimathea, they come. And can you picture this now? There Nicodemus is with the body of Jesus in his arms, the very one that he had spoken with three years earlier. And as they wrap him in the linen cloth and then they put the the line of uh, the resin the aloes and the myrrh in between the wrappings, each carefully done, and then carry that body to the tomb, and they lay it in the tomb. He had to be thinking about these conversations with Jesus. The Bible doesn't give the rest of the story about Nicodemus. That's all it says. But fortunately, church tradition does. And the good news is that the Spirit of God came down, gave him new life, gave him a new heart, a new soul. He washed him. He regenerated him. Tradition says that Nicodemus is the only one that stood up for Jesus at the trial before Pilate. Tradition says that he was baptized by Peter and John. Tradition says that his confession of the Lord Jesus was so bold that it was, caused him to be deprived of his office. He lost his position as teacher. He was kicked out of the Sanhedrin. He lost all of his possessions. He was kicked out of the city of Jerusalem while his family was kept in there. And that he became a very poor person living outside the walls of the city in abject poverty. There's a powerful little traditional story also that his daughter was so poor that in her shame, she had to dig through dung piles to find grains of wheat that they might survive. And a rabbi came and saw her and felt compassion and said, who are you? And she said, I'm the daughter of Nicodemus. And the rabbi said, whatever happened to your father? And she said, he came to be a follower of Jesus and he was banished. And the rabbi moved on. Sounds tragic. Sounds like, man, I don't want that to happen to me. But if Nicodemus were here today, he would tell us it was worth it. He would join with Jim Elliott in telling us, you're no fool to give what you cannot keep to gain 
what you cannot lose. You see, by believing in Jesus, by changing his mind, by stop trusting in his own efforts and putting his trust solely in the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit caused him to be born anew like he will for all of us. And so John beautifully summarizes this conversation, and this is what I believe Nicodemus would want us to know today, by saying this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this conversation with Nicodemus, and God, that it just demonstrates for us what you did for him, Lord, you will do for any and all who open their hearts to you. Lord, we take comfort in the fact that you know our questions. We take comfort in the fact, Lord, that you are so gracious and wise that you can tailor the response, Lord. You can lead us in our understanding, specifically and uniquely tailored to us and our questions. It's my prayer for each person that is here this morning that as a result of listening in on this conversation, that we would be strengthened in our resolve to follow you all the days of our lives, that we would be strengthened in our resolve to know you, Lord. And if there's any here that have yet to cross that line of faith, my prayer for them today is that today might be the day that they stop striving and trust you to do for them what they could never do for themselves. And so, Lord, we commend ourselves to you and to the word of your grace, which is able to build us up. We pray this all in the powerful and risen name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.